I invite you to turn to Mark chapter 15. Is this mic on, Adrian? Okay, thank you. Mark chapter 15. And really, as we look at verses 1 through 20 this morning, it's, it's, it's a meditation on the sufferings of Christ. Once again, we are, we are standing on holy ground as we consider this moment, divinely orchestrated moment in the history of the world. I'm going to go ahead and begin by reading Mark chapter 15, verses 1 through 20. Holy Scripture says, And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. This is God's word. It is for our good. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would give us eyes to see the beauty, the grace, and the majesty of the Lamb of God, in whose name we pray, amen. Jesus, the true King, 
advances toward the throne. He advances toward the throne through suffering, through arrest and accusation, through interrogation and rejection, through condemnation and mockery. It is the world that accuses him, rejects him, and mocks him. The religious world, the chief priests, the political world, Pontius Pilate, the everyday world, the crowd. To mere human eyes, Jesus' advancement toward the cross doesn't look like a royal procession to the throne. To mere human eyes, the whole thing looks like a pathetic failure or weak and tragic victimhood. Only those who have been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of God's beloved Son have eyes that are able to see the accused, rejected, and mocked king as the most lovely person in the universe. As we pick things up at the beginning of Mark chapter 15, we are in the midst of Jesus' procession to the cross. Here in verses 1 to 5, the chief priests bring Jesus to stand trial before Pilate, the Roman governor. Keep in mind that less than 10 hours ago, Jesus had concluded eating the Passover meal with his disciples. There in chapter 14, verse 17, when it was evening, that's just the evening before, which by Jewish reckoning is actually the beginning of the day, evening and morning. So just the prior evening, Jesus had enjoyed this Passover meal with his disciples, and then after that, he went to the Garden of Gethsemane and prayed to the Father. There in Gethsemane, probably around midnight, give or take, Jesus was arrested, chapter 14, verse 46, and then taken to the house of the, uh, the, house of the high priest in chapter 14, verse 53. In the middle of the night, 1 a.m., 2 a.m., 3 a.m., the Jewish high council conducted a trial against Jesus, and in verse 64, chapter 14, verse 64, they condemned him as deserving death. After telling us that some of the, the, the Jewish high officials and the guards treated Jesus with contempt, in chapter 14, verse 65, Mark briefly shifted the spotlight from Jesus to Peter and shows us the tragedy of Peter denying Jesus three times. Now at the beginning of Mark chapter 15, Mark returns to the earlier scene and tells us about the Jewish high council's final decision concerning Jesus. They referred the case to the Roman prefect, Pontius Pilate, in the hope that Pilate would ratify their intention to execute Jesus. This consultation and decision took place, it says in verse 1, as soon as it was morning. This is early morning, probably around 5 a.m., give or take. Mark tells us, you can look at chapter 15, verse, let's see here. 
These time markers are important. Chapter 15, verse 25 tells us that Jesus was crucified at the third hour, meaning around 9 a.m. So what happens in Mark 15, verses 1 to 20, takes place within the time frame of roughly 4 a.m. to 8.30 a.m. One thing I learned in, in reading about this passage is that it was customary for Roman officials to begin their workday very early in the morning, like around the crack of dawn. So the Jewish high council completing their business around 5 a.m. and getting Jesus to trial before Pilate around 6 a.m., as strange as that sounds to our electricity-influenced modern world, actually corresponds to what we know about the workday of Roman officials. That's exactly when the trial would have taken place. At the beginning, very beginning of the day. The result of the consultation is evident in the latter part of verse 1 where it says, They bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. Although the Jewish high council had a great deal of authority in Roman-occupied Judea, they did not have the authority to execute criminals. Rome had to authorize the imposition of the death penalty. Thus, the chief priests and the Jewish high council are now seeking that outcome from the appropriate Roman official, Pilate, who served as the governor or prefect of Judea from 26 to 36 A.D. But the chief priests had a real challenge. They had to make the charges stick. Rome didn't care about the fine points of Jewish law. Back in chapter 14, the Jewish high council had condemned Jesus for blasphemy. But blasphemy was not a capital offense under Roman law. So, more than one commentator has pointed out that what the chief priests had to do and did is to reframe the charge against Jesus in order to infuse it with political overtones, in order to make Jesus look treasonous against Rome, to make him look like a political revolutionary, an insurrectionist, a dangerous and destabilizing influence. That's what Rome cared about, political stability and order. And so that's the game that the chief priest played. In chapter 14, verses 61 and 62, Jesus had affirmed his identity as the Messiah and as the heavenly Son of Man. Now in chapter 15, we see that the chief priests have reframed this into a more political and earthly and controversial way. They must have said something like, this man, Jesus, claims to be the king of the Jews. That's the primary accusation against Jesus, and Pilate asks Jesus about it in verse 2. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, you have said so. You have said so. That's an interesting answer, isn't it? 
I am inclined to agree with most commentators that Jesus' answer carries the idea of a qualified yes. Someone, someone put it like this. Yes, but. On one level, Jesus concedes that it is true that he is the king of the Jews. But on another level, Jesus is distancing himself from his accusers. He is distancing himself from what they mean when they make the statement that he claims to be the king of the Jews. He's distancing himself from the political and revolutionary overtones, which, of course, has absolutely nothing to do with his ministry or teaching. In John chapter 18, Jesus actually explains to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. And Jesus says that his very purpose and mission is to bear witness to the truth. A king? Yes. But not that kind of king. Not a typical king with typical ambitions. Therefore, his answer to Pilate is very carefully stated. At this point, verse 3, the chief priests accused him of many things. Mark does not tell us what things. Luke chapter 23 supplies some helpful, helpful information for us. It says in Luke chapter 23, verse 2, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And then in verse 5, Luke 23, 5, it says, They were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee, even to this place. Now, Pilate expects someone in Jesus' position to defend himself. But Jesus refuses to answer the charges. Verse 4, And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Remember, Jesus had already resolved just six hours earlier in Gethsemane to do the Father's will and drink the bitter cup. Although he is willing to answer questions about his identity, he is not willing to defend himself against their accusations and charges. He trusts his Father. He knows that his Father will vindicate him at the proper time. Just like you see throughout all of the Psalms how the, the righteous man doesn't take up his own defense but takes refuge in the Lord and leaves it to the Lord to defend him in his own time and in his own way. This quiet composure and unworried silence in the midst of lions and fiery beasts, to use the language from Psalm 57, this is perplexing to Pilate. Now, up to this point, Jesus' trial before Pilate is inconclusive. There is something of a stalemate. The chief priests want Jesus executed. They want Pilate to carry out their will, but 
Pilate is not convinced that Jesus has done anything deserving of death, and he is not yet ready to do their bidding. In verses 6 to 15, however, the plot thickens, and Jesus is rejected and condemned to death by crucifixion. In the trial, in, the trial, in verses 2 to 5, the action and dialogue revolves around Jesus, Pilate, and the chief priests. Now, in verses 6 to 15, additional people join the proceedings. In the background, Barabbas, and in the foreground, the crowd. Verses 6 to 8 set up the action. In verse 6, we we are told of a custom. The, The feast referenced here is, of course, the feast of Passover and unleavened bread, which Mark had introduced in Mark chapter 14. Pilate had a custom where each Passover feast he would release one prisoner that the local people requested. One commentator wisely comments that that Pilate was doing this in order to secure goodwill among the people. We'll do one prisoner release every year. Verse 7 we learn about Barabbas. We don't know much about this particular, this particular insurrection or revolt that had taken place, but it was apparently a violent and murderous one, and Barabbas was one of the villains, one of the criminals. And then in verse 8, we meet the crowd. We, 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 this Language of the crowd is used throughout chapters 11 and following, but in a, in a city of tens of thousands of people with, with perhaps well over 100,000 people in it from, uh, for, for pilgrims coming in from all over to celebrate the Passover, there's no reason to think that, that the composition of the crowd is always the same in every chapter and in every location. That's highly, that, would be, that, that would be highly improbable. The point is, is that a particular crowd, a particular group of people, perhaps hundreds, I really don't know how many were in this crowd, they were gathered together early in the morning during, while, while Pilate was carrying out his official duties, and they wanted their prisoner released in accordance with the custom. So as we come to verse 9, it's obvious that Pilate, is not persuaded that Jesus ought to be executed. So he actually suggests that Jesus be the beneficiary of the annual prisoner release. Look at verse 9. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. Pilate's read on the situation is that the chief priests were envious of Jesus' popularity. Even in recent days, Jesus had taught in the temple, and many of the ordinary folks heard him eagerly and hung on his words. And so Jesus had a certain measure of popularity with the ordinary people, And so Pilate thought that perhaps they would like to have 
Jesus released over against the will of the chief priest, but that's not how it's going to play out. Verse 11, the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. One commentator, R.T. France, plausibly claims that Barabbas, as a pro-Jewish nationalist, anti-Roman nationalist and revolutionary, would have been popular among the Jewish people. He's, he's fighting for our independence. He's fighting for the pride of Israel. And so, with the chief priests and the crowd calling for Barabbas' release, that left the question open as to what Pilate would do with Jesus. And so you have this Q&A beginning in verse 12, and Pilate again said to them, then what shall I do with the man you called the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. Verse 15, Pilate reaches his decision. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. In the heat of the moment, and with the priority of political stability on his mind, Pilate was ultimately unconcerned about the demands of true justice. And he was very concerned about satisfying the crowd. It's very difficult to pursue righteousness when you are very overwhelmed by all the people who are shouting literally at your doorstep. Pleasing God was not on Pilate's priority list. What was on Pilate's priority list was pleasing the mob and thus preserving his own political interests. So Barabbas is released. Jesus is scourged and then delivered up to crucifixion. Historically, scourging or flogging often preceded crucifixion. Eckhard Schnabel explains that the instrument of punishment was the Roman flagellum, the scourge consisting of a wooden handle to which were attached leather thongs, often weighted with pieces of metal or bone to inflict maximum damage. Torture. In fact, apparently, many people actually didn't even survive flogging. It was so awful. And I'm reminded of what Jesus taught us in Mark chapter 8, which was actually included in the video that we watched, where Jesus said in Mark 8, 34, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? 
And there is Jesus out in front, losing his life for the sake of the gospel, losing comfort, losing any respectability, and losing his very own life. After the scourging and before the crucifixion, which takes place in verse 25, Jesus suffers mockery in verses 16 to 20. In fact, the Roman soldiers stage a mock coronation, a mock crowning ceremony. This mock coronation takes place, ironically enough, in a palace with a sizable number of Roman soldiers present. They clothe Jesus in a mock robe, a purple cloak, purple uh, representing royalty. They crown Jesus with a mock crown, a crown of thorns. They salute him with mock allegiance. Hail, King of the Jews! They take the mock scepter, which they had previously put in his hand, Matthew tells us that, they take the mock scepter and strike him on the head. William Lane says, the act of spitting at him may be interpreted as a parody on the kiss of homage, which was customary in the East. Psalm 2 says, kiss the son. They spit on the sun. Finally, they kneel down in mock homage. The, the whole thing is sick and cruel mockery which flows so easily out of sinful hearts. Do you know what was in their hearts? The same thing that's in your heart and my heart. When Paul was Reflecting on what human beings are like, he said in Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 12, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That is what was in their hearts, the hearts of those soldiers. That is what is in our hearts unless God graciously intervenes. After the mock coronation, end of verse 20, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. What should we take away from this passage? Not only information, not only awareness of the facts of the case, not only awareness of human depravity, but some glimpses of the true King. And so I want to commend three glimpses of the true King 
Number one, Jesus is God's lamb led to the slaughter in fulfillment of God's plan. Notice the repeated word led. L-E-D. Chapter 14, verse 53. And they led Jesus to the high priest. Chapter 15, verse 1. And they bound Jesus and led Him away. And then verse 16, and the soldiers led him away. And then verse 20, the end of verse 20, and they led him out to crucify him. Jesus, the Son of God, is led. And from a human perspective, it looks like utter failure. Jesus and his movement are going to be snuffed out. But from God's perspective... It's all according to plan. Isaiah chapter 53, verses 7 and 8 say this. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? There is the Lord Jesus Christ led like a lamb to the slaughter. And from a human perspective, and from the point of view of the men involved in what is happening here, they think that they are in charge and that they are delivering Jesus over according to their own will. In chapter 14, Judas betrayed or handed over Jesus. And then in chapter 15, verse 1, they delivered Him over to Pilate. And then at the end of verse 15, Pilate delivered Him to be crucified. But from God's perspective, the Apostle Peter proclaimed in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Mankind is being utterly cruel to God's beloved Son, and yet at the very same time and in the very same circumstances, God is being utterly kind to sinners by offering up His Son for the salvation of the world. And that leads me into the second glimpse. Jesus is the righteous one who suffers so that the unrighteous can be released. The human actors in Mark chapter 15, verses 6 through 15 are unwitting participants in a grand drama that they are utterly blind to. Barabbas is a murderous insurrectionist who deserves to be executed. Jesus is the life-giving Savior and healer who deserves to be honored. But Jesus dies, and Barabbas lives. Ben Witherington notes, 
Jesus is going to be killed for the sort of crime that the man set free actually committed. We don't know if Barabbas was ever given eyes to see the truth that Jesus took, his, took the place of sinners on that cross. But we see it, as it says in one of the hymns, in my place, condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Or as the Apostle Peter proclaimed in 1 Peter chapter 3, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Jesus is delivered over to death so that sinners can be rescued and released from death. That's the gospel right here in verses 6 to 15. Finally, the final glimpse is that Jesus is the true king whose kingship is expressed in surrender, right, where he, he says to the Father, not my will, but yours be done. His kingship is expressed in silence. He refuses to defend himself against the accusations and charges, and whose kingship is expressed in sacrifice and service. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom, as a payment for many. His kingship is mocked in verses 16 to 20, but in truth, in truth, He is the only man in the universe who is worthy to ascend the throne. Jesus, the true King, advances toward the throne through suffering and through the cross. He is the one who gives His life for others. He bears the sin the guilt, the judgment, and the shame of His followers and of His enemies. He obeys the Father to the point of death, even death on a cross. He trusts the Father and not His own resources. We read Mark chapters 14 and 15, and we think that Jesus is on trial. Actually, it's the whole world that's on trial. God's beloved Son shows up and the character of the world is seen for the darkness that it is. The chief priests, the religious establishment, those who were supposed to be close to God, actually their hearts are far from God and they scheme to crucify God's Son. Pilate, the political establishment, The soldiers, expedient, cruel, no concern for truth or justice. The Jewish crowd, everyday people like you and me would rather have a true criminal released and the Holy One put to death. Barabbas, a thoughtless, murderous beneficiary of Jesus' death. Peter denied that he even knew Jesus just a couple hours earlier. If you think that you are any better 
than this sorry cast of characters, then there is something wrong with you. As Stuart Townend wrote, anticipating next week, Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. In our kingdom, we crucify the Son of God. But when Jesus brings His kingdom into ours, into our broken world, the only one worthy to be king expresses His kingship by laying down His life for others. For this very reason, Philippians chapter 2, for this very reason the Father will exalt the humble Lamb to the position of highest honor. As Jesus is led away to the cross in Mark 15, 20, He is right in the center of God's plan, square in the middle of God's appointed pathway to the throne. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would rescue us from our dullness and that you would give us eyes to see the beauty of his sacrifice. In his name we pray, amen.